the Priscilla Rich version of the cheetah. I can understand why she's an iconic Wonder Woman villain. Definitely memorable. She has an iconic look. I think that the classic costume is very cute, but it also is hard to take somebody seriously with those silly kitten ears. It works better as Party City sexy kitten than it does as super villainous that's a threat to Wonder Woman. You know, I, I, I can't dispute yeah. that. That's why I agree the Alex Ross costume, while it's maybe a little too far the other way, it's really severe. And I'm not sure if that level of severity is something I really want for Wonder Woman because I feel like she should be a character that can belong to everybody. And when you get like too dark in her stories where you're seeing people with their heads chopped off and stuff, it's like, is this really the Wonder Woman that we need in the world? But at the same time, it's really cool. And I'm really intimidated by that cheetah in a way that I'm not by any of the other ones. Although I did see a cool. cosplay of somebody wearing a cheetah uniform that was mostly cool, but they had this stuffed doll head at the top of it. <laughs> the whole thing is just like flopped yeah. around on top of her head. It's like, no, no, you were so close. Your cheetah is probably going to be Barbara Ann Minerva then. Yeah, pretty much. That's the one I know the most about. That's the one I've read her full origin and several stories that include her outside of, you know, just, and here's how she became a evil cat lady. But yeah, there's a reason that she's the one that's going to be in the movies. It's much more iconic take on the character, I guess you'd say, to have her be a wear cheetah than just a woman in a $25.99 Party City costume. <laughs> I'm not sure if it really is iconic yet. I'm sure after being in a multi-million dollar, hopefully billion dollar earning movie, she will be the iconic one. But it doesn't seem like Cheetah has found much purchase in the public consciousness. She's had appearances on some of the cartoons, but so is the Priscilla Rich version. And Priscilla Rich, of course, was indelibly marked in the minds of Generation X through the Super Friends cartoon. And then that version has also appeared on shows like Batman the Brave and the Bold. And it doesn't feel like Barbara Ann has had the same impact on the broader culture. So I'm not sure if you could really say that she's the most iconic. She's obviously the most familiar to comics fans, but I'm not sure if she's actually reached the iconic status yet. Was it the Six Flags parks where they have some DC characters? They'll do Priscilla Rich, but probably just because it's an easier costume than trying to do all the makeup for full-on wear cheetah. Okay, let me put it this way. I can't think post-Barbara Minerva of a comic or cartoon retelling that used a Priscilla Rich style cheetah over a Barbara Minerva style cheetah. In a cartoon, I can't think of any time where they said, oh, well, here's the cheetah and it's just a woman in a costume instead of the transformed monster. DC Superhero Girls, she's a transformed creature, a transformed Catwoman. Justice League, cartoons, every Elseworlds that I can think of, at least, it's the Barbara Minerva style cat creature instead of a woman in a costume. So to me, while sure to, I don't want to say your generation because that sounds like me saying, okay, boomer, but <laughs> to the older generations who grew up on Super Friends, the Priscilla Rich style is more common. I feel like in the last probably three decades at least, the Barbara Minerva style has superseded that somewhat. A lot of people talked about how the original Wonder Woman movie owed a lot to the tone of Superman the motion picture. I freaking flipped over the trailers for 1984 because I just love everything about it. I love the emphasis on the lasso especially, which I remember you did too from the podcast. But oh, yeah. what's interesting to me is that the arc of their version of Barbara Minerva seems very similar to the arc of the Michelle Pfeiffer Catwoman from Batman Returns, which is uh, probably my favorite Batman movie. And so it's like, I'm wondering if she's going to borrow anything else from that or if I, it's just me projecting. <laughs> to me, unfortunately, the way they have her come across, at least in the trailer, unfortunately, she reminds me most of Electro from Amazing Spider-Man 2. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. But she's this dorky character who looks up to the hero and wishes she could be like the hero and then gets powers and probably is going to be rejected by the hero and want to get back at her in revenge. That's beat for beat Jamie Foxx's Electro. Oh, I'm going to get kicked off your show. I liked it more than Amazing Spider-Man. 
Spider-Man 1 because I have a high tolerance for cheese. Best Spider-Man costume we've seen on screen. It was a bad movie, but it was a bad movie that I can have fun with versus something like <clears throat> Howard the Duck, which uh, <laughs> I don't feel the need to rewatch that one with friends anytime soon. But getting back to Priscilla Rich, you can see the parallels between her manifestation and Norman Osborn's in the first Spider-Man movie. It's like uncanny, right? Um, yeah, I can see that. I'm trying to remember the specifics of her. It was some weird thing where like she looked at herself in the mirror the wrong way and became evil or something. It's been a while since I read that issue. Her evil um, alter ego is actually talking to her through the mirror. She's having a conversation with the evil <laughs> version of herself in the mirror, just like Norman Osborn. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that does make more sense connecting to Defoe's Osborn. Willem Defoe's Osborn was great. That's all I'm saying. Sorry. Willem Defoe's great. Simple as that. As you probably guessed from earlier episodes, I'm not especially fond of Wonder Woman's Silver Age adventures under writer-editor Robert Kaniger. To me, putting a man like that in charge of the Amazing Amazon is akin to installing Betsy DeVos as the Secretary of Education. I've been collecting this seemingly completed Wonder Woman Golden Age omnibus series, though our last Cheetah episode pointed out some unfortunate missed opportunities to collect rare original HGP or inventory finds, only printed once each on newsprint. I'm sure that DC will eventually offer a Silver Age omnibus, though I'm frankly relieved that they chose to do one for just the Diana Prince run by Mike Sikowski, Denny O'Neill, and Dick Giordano first. That is material that I have happily paid thrice over for, and I'm proud to have it on my bookshelf. I'll be honest, I don't think I have further purchases from that period in me. I bought much of the Kaniger run in the dirt cheap black and white Showcase Presents editions, though I seem to have this odd habit of missing the fourth and final volumes of these things. The Showcase Presents originally retailed for $18 or so, and I got good discounts besides, yet still never really cracked the covers past some blogging on volume one a decade ago. I can't justify paying $35 plus shipping for that missed volume on Amazon. So unless it turns up at a con, I guess I'll just do without. The lengthy delays are nothing new with this show. I could have probably gotten to this installment sooner. There are technically only a couple of comics to cover, and I'm still not sure if I'm going to find some way to be extra about it. Maybe this will just be a short episode. It's just that I'll always drag my feet on reading Kaniger scripts, and I have a backlog of other podcast projects that I wanted to address. Still, I feel I owe something to listeners who once again expected to finally see Wonder Woman 1984 on October 2nd. And let's be honest, there's likely going to be another conciliatory episode around Christmas this year. Hard truth time. Movies aren't happening, folks. No matter how desperately Warner Brothers want to delude themselves. Did you see how that worked out for Tenet? Look to Disney. Despite some initial pie-in-the-sky projections, the Mulan DTV experiment failed. They've since pushed Black Widow back to May, which according to projections is still optimistic given we won't have a widespread vaccine distribution until the second half of 2021, most likely. We may still get Wonder Woman 1984 for Christmas. I just don't think it's going to be this Christmas. At least not theatrically in the U.S. Prove me wrong, I beg you, but we all know what a benevolent year 2020 has been thus far. Getting back to Kaniger, one of the reasons I shade him is that the cheetah disappears for nearly 20 years under his watch. Her last Golden Age appearance was in 1948, and when she next shows up in a comic book in 1965, it's literally showing up in a comic book. The August cover dated Wonder Woman number 156 gets meta by having Lieutenant Diana Prince read a newspaper article about how comic books like Wonder Woman number 6 are going for up to $100 among magazine collectors. It's like when Clark Kent and Perry White suddenly 
suddenly veered into a commercial for Kellogg's cereal during 1950s episodes of The Adventures of Superman. Diana spends a couple of pages explaining to readers about the skyrocketing aftermarket values of her own back issues, complete with statted in Xeroxes of old covers, and then she runs off to a specialty store to further investigate these values. A bad guy called the Brain Pirate of the Inner World then pulls Wonder Woman into one of those tales from quote-unquote the good old days, prompting Kaniger and artists Ross Andrew and Mike Esposito to do a crude pastiche of Mars than Peter material. What, you thought Alan Moore and Grant Morrison invented that sort of thing? When are you going to learn that they're the Led Zeppelin of comic? Also, wow, crude pastiche of Mars than Peter was a weird phrase to utter. But seriously, it looked more like Angel Love than old Wonder Woman comics. By the way, the Overstreet Price Guide celebrated its 50th anniversary this year. Plus, they had a Todd McFarlane Spawn Spider-Man cover. And since I happen to run a Spawn podcast and have never bought an issue of Overstreet Brand New, I indulged in the hardcover. So I can tell you that Wonder Woman number 6 is worth $811 in good condition. That's a 2.0. And then it grades up from there to 1622, 2433, 5920, 10,460, and mint copy will set you back $15,000. And folks, that's before the movie comes out. So folks, if you have the money lying around to buy a slightly used car, and so long as Wonder Woman 1984 doesn't turn out to be our Howard the Duck, you might consider picking up that 15K copy of Wonder Woman number six. So moving along, I guess that one panel tease of the Cheetah prompted some mail because just four issues and six months later, Cheetah legitimately returned as a cover featured villain in Wonder Woman number 160. There were two complete stories in the issue, as was the style of the time, and the second one featured the first Dr. Psycho story after an even longer wait than Cheetah's. So it was apparently old timer's day, more accurately, old timey day, as this issue marked the first attempt at reliving the amazing Amazon's glory days by literally setting the series in the World War II period. Unfortunately, that also requires me to address the dreaded DC multiverse. For the uninitiated, DC Comics didn't really have a universe before the Silver Age. To be honest, it was close to the Bronze Age. Most comic books from the Golden Age were modeled after newspaper strips so that each feature existed in relative isolation with a self-contained continuity to the degree there was any progression from story to story in a given title. You could make the argument that the invention of the Justice Society of America broke that mold by having a bunch of the superheroes published by the All-Star Comics group form a team, but they still just split off in a solo and duo side stories that were bookended with group meetings. You could perhaps better argue that the Marvel family really represented the first comic book universe since they actually interacted with one another in long-form, multi-issue narratives that impacted on a shared continuity of an ever-expanding premise. Where do you think all those Lieutenant Marvels came from? But anyway, the original superhero fad died with the war, as comics faced increasing competition with television and telling stories from other genres. A revival was staged in the mid-1950s. This began with The Flash, who explicitly relegated the Golden Age stories of Jay Garrick to in-universe comic books the new kid, Barry Allen, had read as a boy. There was still demand from readers to see Barry and Jay team up though, so editor Julius Schwartz and his writers contrived a way. It was revealed that those comics were produced by writers that somehow tapped into the wavelength of a parallel version of Earth that existed on a different vibrational frequency. Being super speedsters, the flashes of the two worlds were uniquely able to vibrate onto one another's frequencies to have the occasional adventure together. Problem solved, right? Except DC launched a Green Lantern revival and Green Lantern Hal Jordan became friends with Barry Allen and readers also wanted him to team up with his Golden Age predecessor, Alan Scott. Then the Justice League of America formed, featuring Wonder Woman, a prominent member of the Justice Society of America from different vibrational frequency land. 
Plus, Superman and Batman had appearances with that team. The logic really unravels from there. Unlike with Flash and Green Lantern, there wasn't a blonde lady named Lita Hall that only served as a springboard for the bold, modern, visually distinct current Wonder Woman. They were clearly the same person, continuously published, serving on two different worlds and on two separate teams. This Golden Age Tide world was called Earth 2, and there were therefore two Supermenses and Batmanses, with no clear point of demarcation between which of their stories belonged to which Earth. Usually, though, fans and editors would take a happenstance of a heavily revised origin story as when Aquaman went from being a regular guy given powers from a potion that his archaeologist father had concocted to being respectability Namor and pretending like that meant they were two different people. It was a tenuous premise to begin with and it only gets harder to believe when Robert Kaniger insists on having World War II era adventures with the supposed Earth-1 Wonder Woman complete with having her fight the same villains that the Earth-2 Wonder Woman fought. Even though everything that we're seeing in these stories was present in tales from two decades earlier, we're all supposed to pretend that this is the first time we've ever seen a wartime Wonder Woman fight a lady named a cheetah. Oh yeah, when I think of this sort of thing, a cheetah surely does come to mind. Maybe they should have just said the DC Trinity pioneered vibration. That sounded wrong. So the Amazon of Terror from Wonder Woman number 160, while still aping Peter to a degree, Ross Andrew Moore incorporates Golden Age elements into his style rather than completely bastardizing it. Canada mostly Canagers, so much so that you needed him to tell you that the setting had changed. Cheetah turns up lounging in the tiger cage of a world-famous zoo, serving as a distraction while her team of henchmen commit a robbery. Let's break this down for a moment. Cheetah is not an active participant at the site of the actual crime, and she employs a team of exclusively men. Why, if the cheetah wasn't in a cage, this would bear no semblance to a Marston script. And even then, how did she escape without so much as being threatened with a whipping? This star is a false bill of goods and I demand my money back. Meanwhile, without a hint of irony, Steve Trevor and Diana Prince are elsewhere at the exact same zoo. There, Steve continues his Silver Age chauvinism while ignoring the appeal of the actual woman that he's with while preferring to wait for the fantastic ideal that he knows will be his someday. Oh yes, now I remember why nobody complained when creators barely acknowledged the existence of Steve Trevor for the entire post-crisis continuity. A quarter century in exile seems like time well served when I read stories like these. Steve looks buffoonish when he manages to have his foot stepped on by an elephant while taking its picture. Wonder Woman appears out of, obviously, Diana Prince, only adding to Steve's idiocy for not noticing as she presses the pachyderm to save Steve's toesies while they make goo-goo eyes at each other under a tree. A pistol-packing cheetah rides by in one of those open-air tour buses with a max speed of maybe 25 miles per hour? In another nod to Marston, at least the male henchmen are all wearing monkey costumes. That moron Trevor hops up and tries to take down the seven heavily armed monkey men plus cheetah all by himself only be knocked out and turned into a hostage to cow wonder woman when cheetah orders her henchmen to turn their tommy guns on the superheroine few bullets and bracelets what is the opposite of climax inception i guess this is the first meeting of the earth one wonder woman and cheetah and it is anti-inceptive the cheetah was hired by baron von hohenzo to rob a priceless exhibit of extinct animals so it's a dude bankrolling this gig another no-no and there's no extinct animals on the tour cart afterwards. It's just Cheetah's pack, as she calls them, even though monkeys should be a barrel or a troop holding the bags with the money signs on them. So they were paid money to steal money from an exhibitor's gate. 
when they necessarily need to steal more money than they were being paid. But then Wonder Woman happens to be there and arrest everyone but Cheetah, who escapes up a nearby tree. Almost certainly the same tree that Steve was resting under earlier, because it was the only one in the vicinity of the encounter, and Cheetah is seen looking down over that scene. Because Wonder Woman never looks above eye level, she unintentionally calls Cheetah a horrible looking creature with an earshot. And Cheetah is so offended by this that she swears revenge. You can't tell because editing and audio medium, but I just rested my eyes in the palms of my hands and gave them a good long deep massage. Like the crafty animal after which she has been named, Cheetah trails Steve. This soldier boy is the secret weapon I'll use to trap that blasted Amazon. Randomly, Steve is looking at a little crystal ball thing in his bedroom, and Cheetah like ran across phone or power lines and got to the window and overheard him. If there were only some magic machine I could use that would release my brain energy into my muscles at will, the way Wonder Woman does, then I could be as strong as she. Stronger, maybe. Then she'd be so attracted to me she'd marry me the next time I asked and so she gets the ball thing and she's able to instantly mesmerize Steve with this and make him think that she has the exact device he was asking for but with a twist stare 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 deep into the light until you see nothing but Cheetah the most beautiful woman in the world whom you are absolutely gaga about and sure enough Wonder Woman shows up for a date with Steve to see her beau canoodling with Cheetah on his love seat kissing her that criminal and of course Wonder Woman takes this all at face value. No Dark Knight detective is she. While the mighty Amazon is shattered by the sight of the only man she had ever known in the arms of her arch enemy, who she just met this issue and barely had a confrontation with, Cheetah takes advantage of Wonder Woman's uncontrollable sobbing to steal her magic lasso and then wrap both Wonder Woman and Steve up in it. Because at this point in time, the lasso of truth allowed the wielder to subjugate anyone who is bound by it. Cheetah is able to control Wonder Woman to make her jump into the invisible plane and fly her to the secret site of her own personal private army? They're mercenaries who will fight for the highest bidder. Suffering Sappho, with those fake uniforms and deadly weapons, they'll cause terrible chaos, and I'm powerless to stop them. Ironically, it's this army in lead helmets and wine-colored uniforms that breaks the hypnotic spell over Steve Trevor. Who are you? You're fakes impersonating real American soldiers. You're a disgrace to that uniform. Take it off. And Steve is so incensed that he starts pummeling a whole troop of these soldiers. Cheetah thinks that her men will tear this fool to pieces. But Dana is all, Fool, he's magnificent. Oh, I wish I could help him. But I'm powerless. Thunderbolts of Jove strike me for allowing myself to be bound with my own lasso. Steve is inevitably crushed by the weight of numbers and he can't pull up Steve Trevor. He's no Captain America. He just can't fight them all off. But then Cheetah makes a huge tactical blunder. But you are. And as long as I hold the lasso, you must obey me. That reminds me, just to make sure you won't be playing ping pong with any bullets, my army might shoot at you. Take off those fancy bracelets of yours. Take off my bracelets? But I swore to Aphrodite that I wouldn't. No Amazon has. I, I don't know what would happen if I removed these symbols of submission. Please don't ask me. You know I'm compelled to obey you as long as you hold my lasso. Stop stalling and take them off, I command you. I, I must obey. And once the bracelets are off, Wonder Woman lets 
out this banshee wail and just goes through troops like a bowling ball through pins. She realizes swiftly that she royally screwed up. Diana is in complete berserker mode. She trashes all the munitions, the base, the tanks, everything. Wrecks it. Something's turned my beautiful angel into a raging demon. I've got to stop her before she goes on from here like a twister. But how? Her bracelets are off. Steve realizes that the bracelets are still lying on the ground. And so what he does, he, he grabs them, he holds them up. And as Wonder Woman is leaping toward him, he manages to do like a ring toss and slam the bracelets onto her wrists again. Is she going to kill me or kiss me? And sure enough, that kiss comes. Thank Hera. I'm myself again. Oh, Steve, I shudder to think what might have happened. It was worth it to be kissed like this. Even while her gang is taken away by the authorities Wonder Woman had summoned, the crafty cheetah remains hidden and... Wow, that Amazon's pure dynamite. I've got to figure out how to make her dance to my tune again. Then she'll be my secret weapon to hold up the whole world. But like the twisted dream of all criminals, Wonder Woman had found Cheetah crawling on one of the dismantled tanks and grabbed her by the tail. I'm taking you to a special prison, Cheetah, where you will pay your debt to society and learn the Amazon ways of service to those in need and loving kindness. Thus ends Wonder Woman's battle against the unpredictable Cheetah, but even more startling adventures and picturesque villains await you as the mighty Amazon recreates the golden age of comics in the next issue of Wonder Woman. P.S. Who is your favorite character, villain or hero of the golden age? Let us know. So of course, in another issue, Kaniger adapts the story of Cheetah's daring takeover of Reformation Island, and then, yeah, nah, this story goes nowhere. It isn't even referenced in the other Silver Age story beyond Wonder Woman recognizing who the Cheetah was. Hell, this story doesn't even reference this story. Where'd the army come from? Why wasn't it outfitted with gorilla costume? Why would uniforms resembling no military on Earth so incense Steve over its misuse? Was Baron Von Hohenzo in there somewhere? We'll never know. So don't worry your pretty little head over it. I can't say that Robert Kaniger is a terrible writer because I haven't read enough of the war stories that he is best remembered for, but I can definitely state that he obviously couldn't care less about his craft on this title. Based on the Cheetah's handling in this story, I thought that I could safely assume that Kaniger was watching the Adam West Batman TV series and was simply reworking their take on Catwoman. Color be surprised that this story predated the debut of the TV series by about a month and Julie Newmar's debut on it by three months. Whether the high visibility of Catwoman had any impact whatsoever on the Cheetah, Priscilla Rich only made one more appearance in the Silver Age. Because nothing compliments misogyny quite like racism, Cheetah was bumped from the cover of Wonder Woman number 166 by the final appearance of the infamous Egg Foo. Because a giant oriental egg with mustache tentacles was surely going to outsell gorillas, Cheetah was relegated to the second story titled Once Upon a Wonder Woman. Once again, Steve Trevor only sees Lieutenant Diana Prince as a subordinate in military intelligence and as a means to get to Wonder Woman. Steve wants Diana to find out when Wonder Woman will finally marry him, so Prince can serve as maid of honor? Diana figures that if Steve truly loved her for her whole being, then he would have fallen for Lieutenant Prince. But of course, it isn't that Steve is a cad, just that he suffers the failings of all men. So a case could be made that Diana herself is blinded by prejudice. Diana spies a runaway van out of her office window, so Wonder Woman has to stop it from running over nurses with baby carriages by stabbing her stiletto heels through the floorboard like Fred Flintstone in kinky boots. The amazing Amazon then exits the cab as Diana Prince imperiling her secret identity in hopes that a serving of heroism from the lieutenant might finally catch Steve's eye. Sigh. General Darnell offers Prince a congratulatory handshake and by his own admission, a long overdue promotion to captain. I should point out that Darnell will eventually profess affection for Diana Prince. And while Colonel Trevor is also her superior, it's Darnell's advances that are painted as inappropriate. But at least Darnell actively supported Diana's career, where Steve just sees the promotion as adding weight to any suggestions Diana could whisper in Wonder Woman's ear to advance his relationship goals. All of these people suck. 
In need of fresh air, Lieutenant Prince turns down Steve's offer for a jeep ride to her car, only for three exceptionally well-dressed muggers to approach her. Steve was keeping an eye out for Diana even after her refusal, allowing him to double back and take the hoods on, unarmed, on foot. Once again, you can't see my eyes rolling on account of the audio medium. Diana swoons over Steve's Captain Kirk Kung Fu, but his chivalry is still just another way in toward his angel. I know it gets lost amid all the other scandals, but remember when Donald Trump used to pretend to be someone by a different name to call reporters to act as his own hype man? Because it's not like Donald Trump has super distinct speech patterns, right? Trump was so pathetic that he'd call himself John Barron, a pseudonym he loved so much that he he named his real-life son after his fake identity, and he would then talk up Donald Trump as John Barron. That would be like Bruce Wayne calling the Gotham Financial Times using his Batman voice to pump up Wayne Industries stock, and then turn around and convince Talia al Ghul that Batman Wayne was a better name than Damien, except he'd have had Talia get an abortion. All this is to say that Diana Prince pulled a John Barron by calling the newspapers as Wonder Woman to pretend that she was throwing a charity costume ball in honor of her best friend Diana Prince's promotion, all in service to trying to trick Steve into liking one of her identities over the other one. These people make me so very, very tired. Hey, it's the middle row of page 8 in a 12-page story. The perfect time to introduce the costume villain of the piece. The cheetah, without a hint of personal animosity, decides that she and her trio of henchmen, still inexplicably dressed as brown gorillas with shoulder holsters and tommy guns, could rob a costume ball unnoticed. May I remind you that these stories take place in Washington, D.C., which was built over a swamp and is a humid subtropical climate. I must again ask why these men are dressed like gorillas instead of like the muggers who could have passed for politicians in our nation's capital. Why does a cheetah-themed villainous have gorilla henchmen that cannot commit a robbery from downwind who will most likely collapse from heat exhaustion mid-heist? But at least they have a typical range of vision because they don't wear face masks. What purpose does this serve? Even if you could fool people into believing that they were gorillas with their human faces jetting out of their thick, furry costumes, outside of that one suspiciously lucrative zoo heist, wouldn't a gorilla pack attract far more unwanted attention than basically anything else? Astronauts, sports team mascot, new romantic revivalists in purple crushed velvet pirate costumes with war paint smeared on their faces. Because see, the cheetah apparently isn't a crazy person on Earth 1, and her identity isn't bound to a cheetah costume, and she's unconcerned with Wonder Woman. So why must she only gear her heists towards zoos and costume balls? We don't know! Because we spend two-thirds of the story on the inane mating dance of Steve Trevor, Diana Prince, and Diana Prince cosplaying as either an army officer or an Amazonian princess superheroine, your choice. Dr. William Moulton Marston set aside space from his relentless and repetitive, onanistic BDSM fantasies thinly disguised as a children's periodical publication for the weird backstories and disturbing characterizations that define Golden Age Wonder Woman comics. It's 
bad enough that Bob Kaniger's hangups are just as overt, but must they be so deadly dull and ill-formed? Can we have a semblance of a story with the slightest forethought and effort to go with your painfully middle-brow suburban sexual politics, good sir? Do you not realize that an artist has to draw this tripe? Which, let's face it, at the end of the day, is probably the secret origin of a squad of gangsters in gorilla suits. Mort Weisinger claims they boost sales, and Ross Andrew had more fun drawing monkeys than monkey suits. So Diana Prince's plan is to have Wonder Woman throw a costume party for Diana Prince, where Wonder Woman will stand her up so Steve Trevor will spend more time with Diana Prince in her best light which includes lying to him constantly about being two different people, but it's okay because he's a schmuck who happens to be Diana's favorite in the land of the schmucks. Oh, oh, and Cheetah announces her gang with guns drawn as soon as they enter the ball, which admittedly no one takes seriously. So I guess criminal mastermind by default? Meanwhile, Diana Prince recognizes the Cheetah, but at Steve's urging, she's stuck literally, and I mean in the printed dialogue, doing the Batusi. <sighs> I'm back to thinking Kaniger must have seen some screenplays pass through the DC offices after all. Diana Prince spins to create a whirlwind to knock everyone down as she changes into Wonder Woman in the midst of the ball to address the, again, literal barrel of monkey thieves. The thieves are in the big barrel where all the charity money went. It looks more like a bongo drum, and I guess you could argue it's a tank rather than a barrel. I think you're focusing on the wrong elements here. Pew pew, bullets and bracelets, deflection, giant crystal chandelier, zing zing, chandelier only pins gangsters instead of crushing the life out of them, hated see a reference or musical cue, lasso the cheetah in the same panel. These are the only lines spoken by Wonder Woman and Cheetah directly to one another. Mind if I do a little collecting of my own and contribute you to jail, Cheetah? No question mark indicating that this is a rhetorical statement. If you insist, Wonder Woman, but life will be more exciting if you leave me to prowl around outside. Pretty chill for a villain that's about to spend a decade in comic book jail. And ironically, she'll get sprung by the Super Friends, but not because of the cartoon. More on that next time. Yes, I actually seriously thought about being extra enough to include the entirety of Super friends in this episode. Common sense and, you know, laziness won out. Once again, Cheetah is broadly considered to be Wonder Woman's most infamous foe, despite only appearing in four Golden Age comic book issues and half that many Silver Age ones. I made the case for those World War II era stories last time, but I can't post much of a defense here. She's Catwoman for paupers. Remember when Rob Liefeld took over the Avengers and he just turned Hellcat into a generic Lady Cat hybrid like Federal from his previous series X-Force and how she was basically just an ultra-violent take on Wolfsbane from New Mutants? Far more imagined and creative integrity in Heroes Reborn Hellcat than Silver Age Cheetah. And that Hellcat was arguably a ripoff of Perez's Cheetah. Silver Age Cheetah has less to offer readers than one of her own ripoffs in a Rob Liefeld paycheck gig drawn by Chap Yape from a mere Liefeld plot. The Team Youngblood creative team puts Kaniger Cheetah to shame. And these were the Cheetah stories that most informed comic creators going into the 1970s. Hera, help us. By the way, the cover featured Threat One One Faces next issue, an actual Cheetah. I've gone years without moderating comments on some of my blogs, so let me do a quick catch up on Diana Prince at least. In January of 2018, Carl wrote, Great stuff on here. Good to see this blog back after such a long delay. Always a pleasure. That's it. That's the comment that wasn't an ad, so I don't feel too bad. Facebook fared better with likes from Ruth Sutherland, Mike Peacock, Derek William Crabb, Gautam Shiorin, and Debash. Now on to Twitter. We got likes and retweets from The Fourth Pip, The 108th Sage, Aaron Henley, Alex Mellon, Andrew Weirdna, Dr. Ange, Ask What Would Wonder Woman Do, Beppo, between the Pages, Brett Brock, Cable Says Vote, Captain Freakouts, Psychedelic Radio, Chris Lydon, Crisis in the DC RPG, DC Tweets, Dean Lonergan, Dr. Quinzel, 
Drew at nine box for nine. Doctor Pop Culture BGSU. Ed Moore. Alyssa McCausland. Fan Holes Podcast. Gabe Madame X. Harvest Time Nebraskan. History of Comics on Film. Paul Hicks. Ian Yigal. I was Joe Crawford. Jacques Voix. Jeffrey Brown. Jim Imbruglia. John Williams. Hashtag WW84. Hashtag Black Lives Matter. Capucha Antonio. Carl Disley. Keith G. Baker. Carowin. Kim Lazenby, who added, thank you, I will give it a listen. King Dinosaur. Christoph 720. Martin Gray. Mike at Send Aliens to Me. Min. Nathaniel Devon Sanford. Naveed Hayter. Neil Armstrong of Kithos. Nick Smith. The Phil Factor. Professor Frenzy. Rad Adventures Podcasting Network. Randy Caldwell. Relatively Geeky. Resurrections and Adam Warlock and Thanos Podcast. Reverend Rodell Abner Dracula. Richard Field. Robert Speculum Fight. Ryan Daly. Sarah Century. Satin Tights. Wonder Woman Podcast. Seer Wars and Beyond Podcast. Siskoid. Spidey Vigilante and Comic Book Action, Talking Wonder Woman, Terrence Castanguay, Terry Osterhout, Ranging Vigilante, Warlord Worlds, who added simply Cheetah with a Paul Prince emoji, Western Mass Wonder Woman, Wonder Woman at Wonder Amazon, Wonder Woman Warrior for Peace Podcast, Xenozoic Xenophiles, Zachary Diamond, and Zozo. Angela wrote, Hooray, a new episode of Diana Prince Wonder Woman with a small guest appearance by yours truly. Welcome back to Paradise Island, Frank. Aaron Henley wrote, Huh, Cheetah was originally a woman in a costume and not a metahuman. I learned something today. Harvest Time in Nebraska. Raskin added, this I knew, but only due to the old Super Friends cartoon. Andrew Werdner wrote, great app. I love your summation of Golden Age Cheetah, the queen of pettiness, only winning when someone else is losing in as embarrassing a fashion as possible. More Joker than Catwoman. Wish this was the Cheetah we have today. Finally got an email, which is a rare thing. It's also rare that I check it. Mike Laughlin wrote, Diablo Frank, regarding Diana Prince, entertaining episode. I knew almost nothing about Priscilla Rich. She sounds like a character that could be revived today, a la post-crisis Lex Luthor. While I don't have the same love for Wonder Woman as a character that you do, I find find it disheartening that there are so few quality runs on comics' premier superheroine. I wasn't surprised that you haven't enjoyed a modern Wonder Woman comic in a while, but I hope someone cracks the code in a way that works for you in the near future. Thank you for your continued podcasting. Wonder Woman is the copyright of DC Comics Entertainment. This is a non-profit fan-produced podcast. No infringement of any copyrights are intended. And where copyrighted material appears, it is believed protected under fair use. If you enjoy the show, please feel free to leave a comment on the Diana Prince is the new Wonder Woman blog, the Rolled Spine podcast blog. Write to me at emailofdiabolu at yahoo.com featuring two underscores. Or just hit me up on Twitter at commanderblanks or at Rolled Spine. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful week.